I am deeply into the belief that being fit in body contributes to being fit in mind. Many people, I believe, perform best when they're fit and healthy. And I think there is increasing evidence to show that there are interventions that we can be doing in nutrition, in exercise, in sleep, and others, supplements as well, and other things that can be really beneficial to extending lifespan, health span, so that uh, you can live a long, healthy life. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Adrian Lee. Adrian is the founder and managing partner of AC Ventures, formerly known as Convergence Ventures. AC Ventures is an early-stage, Indonesia-focused tech VC fund. They manage five funds with an AUM of over $500 million and a portfolio of over 120 businesses. Investments led for the fund include PayFast, Coinworks, Julo, Stockbit, Stendit, Astro, Carsum, and more. But that's not the most interesting part. Adrian's first startup was Adapted, whereas CEO and co-founder, he raised two rounds of funding, led the company to be the largest live online English training service in China of all places, and also exited the company. I had an awesome chat with Adrian, and I'm sure you'll enjoy. Hi, Adrian. Nice to finally meet you today. I'm really excited to speak with you. I think I've seen you all over my feed as well since I started, but I've never really gotten the chance to get to know you more. So I'm happy to have the chance today. Thank you, Amanda. It's a great pleasure to be on here with you. So the first question I always ask people when they come onto the podcast is, what was your childhood like? I glossed a little bit over your LinkedIn. I saw you spent some time overseas at some point, but I'm not sure if you were always overseas. So feel free to let me know what your early childhood is like and start from there. Thanks. Well, I've never been asked that question, so it's a great place to start. But I think when often I get asked, where are you from? And I struggle with that question sometimes. People are often expecting a very straightforward answer. Mine ends up being several minutes, and maybe that's a good precursor to understanding my childhood. So as you know, as you can see, as you know, I'm ethnically Chinese, but I was born in the UK, in London. And my, my parents had studied in the UK and had met there, and uh, I was born there. And so I spent the first seven years of my life really growing up in the UK before my parents moved to Hong Kong. My father is from Hong Kong. He was born there. But my mother was born in Kuala Lumpur. And so we would frequently go to Malaysia for summer to meet her parents and also my relatives as well. But through that, I really had an upbringing growing up in different countries. I went to boarding school after three years staying in Hong Kong. So I started boarding school at 10, and that was back in the UK. And fortunate, I was fortunate that my parents were in a position to be able to bring me back every holiday. So that was three times a year. And each of those times I came back, I'd either spend it in Hong Kong or spend it in 
Malaysia, or sometimes we would uh, over the summer go on holiday elsewhere. And so I'd say in my childhood, that part of my upbringing really had many multicultural influences. You know, through the school, it was see very British, very Western in nature. Um, at home, it was very, I'd say, Southeast Asian, but also sometimes Southeast Asian Chinese can be quite traditional. So strong adherence to family and cultural values that revolve around family. But I think I overall had a you know, very, very fortunate, quite privileged childhood where while both my parents worked and as kids, myself and also my brothers, we all went to boarding school eventually, didn't see a huge amount of our, of our parents while they were working and also because we were at boarding school. When we got the chance on holiday, we spent some really quality time together. And I think the type of impression that left for us, I speak on behalf of my brothers, I believe it's true too, but mostly for myself, is that our parents really taught us the value of hard work. And I think that is something which has really stayed to us. We all put a lot of time into the work that we do. And I think that's coupled with the fact that our parents were always, which is maybe slightly not Asian, very open to letting us pursue what we were most passionate about. Uh, my mother was a headhunter. My father was, is still a surgeon. And we were never pressured to be professionals or, you know, in, in the medical world, you'd often see the parents encourage their children to pursue a medical career as well. But I was squeamish from a young age. You couldn't stand the sight of blood. And so <laughs> there was no way I was. I'm the same. <laughs> doctor. But uh, they, they really encouraged us to, to do what we were deeply interested in. And that coupled, I think, with this value of breeding tenacity and hard work. With it, uh, some of the ingredients that have helped me and also my brothers to find success in what we do today. So one question I have is like going to boarding school at 10, I guess you don't see your parents that often. So what were the biggest influences that they had on you? Was it through the stories that they would share or is it really through the few, quote unquote, few moments that you'd had with them during like, vacation? Yeah, so I think you know, this value of hard work, I, my father, as I mentioned, is a doctor and he was in the public service for a long period of time. If you're familiar with any doctors that are in the public service, it is absolutely a grind. And so you know, there were long hours at work. He was on call a lot of the time, you know, which meant getting up in the middle of the night and, and, and uh, attending to patients. And I think that was matched by the challenges my mother also faced when she re-entered the workforce. I've got two brothers. So she went back into the workforce fairly late after you know, spending significant time when we were very young, including my youngest brother. And so Entering at the bottom of the ladder in a corporate, a US corporate at that age is also challenging, right? When your peers, you know, at that point may be more progressed in their career. But my mother again demonstrated a lot of work ethic and determination. And she ultimately became either was a vice chairman for her side of the practice at Corn Ferry after many years. I think she was there for over 25 years. So there's a lot of dedication and demonstrated passion to what she wanted to do. So I would reiterate that it was really that dedication and hard work that paid off, that really that rubbed off, I think, on myself and also my brothers. Also that pursuit of something that you're passionate and you have great interest in. I would say that the third aspect is because 
my parents also had a pretty multicultural upbringing studying abroad. We have been blessed with an opportunity to grow up in both Asian and Western societies. And so naturally that gives us a lot more cultural context when it comes to working and bridging cultures and different people, different backgrounds. I would say that extends to a deeper level of better understanding of people in particular. I think my mother was and continues to be an excellent judge of of character and experience. I think that's what's contributed to her success in being a headhunter. And I believe that that is a really key ingredient in what we do today, as both as a venture capitalist and as an entrepreneur, because as you know, and I'm sure you've heard from many of your guests on this podcast, that success is rarely, is hardly ever an individual effort. It's a team effort. And that team is dependent on the ability to bring together talented, experienced, and complementary people who work well together as a team. And ultimately, what that boils down to is also your ability to understand people and motivate them, interpret people. And I think for venture, that's actually one of the biggest challenges, right? To identify entrepreneurs and teams who really represent not just potential, but the ability to execute. And I think that really ties into what I'm going to ask you later. But for now, I want to ask you again, like about your experience going to boarding school so early in life. How did that affect you as an individual? So when I started boarding school at 10, curiously, I was the one who wanted to go. Oh, okay. (laughs) It wasn't my parents who forced me to go. It was because our neighbor's kid, whom we were close to, had, he was a year older than me, had started going to boarding school um, after you know, uh, studying in Hong Kong for some time. And when he came back, he told me stories of everything that he'd done at boarding school. And it just sounded so exciting to me. So I didn't, I think at the time, really think about leaving home and being away from home and whether I'd be homesick or not. I was just more excited about uh, <laughs> all the fun you would be having. <laughs> possibilities of being at boarding school. And so I spoke, you know, I, I mentioned it to my parents. I think with all three of us, three boys in the household, my parents were probably quite open to that idea of uh, outsourcing part of the, uh, of my upbringing. I say that in jest because obviously you know, parents play a crucial part in, in, in upbringing, but I think boarding school was extremely formative as well. So that was, I think, a, a key part of my overall education. Anyway, so. It was initially through my own decision and motivation to go to boarding school, went and visited a couple and found one that I liked and started there. I did get homesick in that very first term and was close to telling my parents I really didn't want to go back. In fact, it was the night, the night of after of uh, the night I was supposed to fly out after my first term at at Caldicott, the boarding school I was at, we were having dinner at my grandparents' place. And I had decided to leave the dinner midway and lock myself in the toilet. And <laughs> I told them I wasn't coming out because I wasn't going back to boarding school. <laughs> they, they eventually managed to convince me to, to obviously come out and said, reassuringly, look, if you really don't want to go back after another term, you know, we can stop, but you do have to go back, you know, at least this term. So you know, they they coaxed me out. I got on the plane. I think I cried 
in the toilet in the plane for at least a good couple of hours, missing home. But as soon as I got to boarding school, that actually all disappeared. So when you're amongst your friends and you know the all the opportunities, everything that you can do at boarding school, at, at the boarding school, mind very quickly just focused on 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 things to do. And so, in terms of how that shaped me, I think that it really helped me as an individual mature a great deal. I think living at home in Asia, many of us have help at home as well, where things get done for you. Really, you know, when you go to boarding school, you have to end up doing a lot of things yourself. So from I think that in many different ways made me more independent. I think that with boarding school, because it really is almost education 24 hours and there's a strict routine every day, it really helped me focus on what I wanted to put my mind to. And one of the stories from my childhood that I think was a pivotal time when I was a student was at Caldicott. I recall there was a, and just give for, for, for context, this is, this would be about 34 years ago, right? So we all had tutors and in our main dining room, there were these large wooden boards where they had names of students on there. And I did not know what they were, why the students' names were on there. And I had asked my tutor, you know, why do those students have their names on on the wall? You know, what's so important about them? And he said that those were names of students who had been admitted and got into Oxbridge, which are a couple of prestigious universities in the UK. I had no idea what Oxbridge was or why it was important or why it was prestigious, but it sounded like a goal to go for. And so I said to him that, oh, I'd like to go there. I think I'll aim for that. Very lightheartedly. And of course, he said, look, it's, uh, it's a very, very small chance of being able to get there. And it's most likely you will not be able to get there. And that surprised me. In fact, it shocked me you know, to hear someone challenge me. Well, let's say, say that I would not be able to get in, but I interpreted it as a challenge. And I think something flipped to me in like a switch there where I decided from then on I would study extremely hard <laughs> to get into <laughs> the Oxbridge. And so much so that I actually had in my report to my parents, because in the UK, while it was quite academic school, they did emphasize a lot of holistic education. So that includes social, that includes sports. And while I did do sports, I threw myself into so much academic study that they wrote in my report, they were concerned about me because I would spend too much time studying. (laughs) (laughs) To me, when I read those reports, because I still have some of those today, I think it sounds ridiculous. They said, they literally wrote, all work and no play makes Jack a very dull boy. That's what was written in my report. But, you know, that was something that really triggered something in me that made me study extremely hard. There were new subjects I had to get up to speed with, which I hadn't studied in Hong Kong. And I was fortunate that I, I managed to pick up on you know, quite a few of the subjects. I think you know, the time spent just helped improve my standing in, in my class and ultimately must have played a role in helping me get an, a place at the, the next school, my high school, Harrow School, which ultimately played a role in eventually getting me a place and an offer at Cambridge. So I did get it in the end. And so I'm very thankful for that conversation with my tutor for you know, the schools that my parents were able to afford to 
had me go to. But I think from that young age as well, it really, and I've only, I guess, internalized this more, you know, in more recent years is that even if you set a goal that's so high and you have to, you know, and, and it seems impossible at the time, you need that goal there in place. Because if you don't have the goal there in place to begin with, then how could you even achieve it? Right. And so, you know, so I'm very thankful for that part of my experience at boarding school. So when you decided that you were going to study really, really hard to get into Oxbridge, were you already like an academic or nerdy kid? Or were you like a sporty kid who didn't care for academics and enjoyed boarding school because it was fun? So boarding school really focused me. When I was at day school in Hong Kong, I was neither studious nor disciplined. Yeah, I, I was very middle of the road, pretty average, I think, in terms of academics. I wasn't well behaved. Maybe the nice way to put it is that I had too much energy <laughs> that <laughs> was directed in the wrong ways. But perhaps I also wasn't challenged enough or there weren't the opportunities to challenge myself as much when I was at day school. And so I think the boarding school experience really opened that up. And I guess like when you're applying to Oxbridge, you have all of the requirements, right? Like there's a certain score that you need to at least get considered, I guess, right? So when you were applying, did you believe you had a good chance of getting in? So it's right. We needed to, when I got into Harrow, it was one, it's one of these schools where traditionally you need to be registered at an early age and you need to be on a wait list and, and so on and so forth. Of course, we had not planned for any of that. And therefore, I was not on any list. The only way for me to get in after having an interview with the housemaster was to take a scholarship. And so my academics at my prep school positioned me in a, in a way that I could take the scholarship. I didn't end up getting the scholarship, but they gave me a place. That continued to, at the time, what was known as GCSEs. I don't know if they're still called GCSEs today. You take them when you're 15. And you needed to achieve a certain level of grades in GCSE in order to be able to apply to Oxbridge because they wanted to make sure that they had a good quality of students applying to Oxbridge. So schools often evaluated by how many applicants they can, they can or how many uh, offers they can get for their students. I was determined in that, therefore, to try and take as many GCSEs as I possibly could and obviously try and <laughs> score well in them. And I ended up taking 12 of these. That's hilarious. <laughs> and 11 GSEs and one something known as an AO, an additional level. So it's slightly higher than a, a GCSE. I ended up getting all A's for it. So six A stars at the time is what they were known as, and also six A's. And then that qualified me for, for being able to apply to, to Oxbridge. They also gave me an honorary scholarship, which, funnily enough, allowed me to put SCH after my name at school, but did not confer any bursary or any monetary reward. So, <laughs> so I had what the does title. What SCH stand for? The scholar. scholar. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's just a title. I guess. That's right. It's just the title. It's just the title. So, unfortunately, I was not able to relieve my parents of any of the financial burden of that uh, with, the, with the scholarship, but. It did allow me to put this uh, SCH after my name <laughs> at school and allow me to, I think more importantly, to be considered to apply to Oxbridge. And so when you're applying to Oxbridge, did you already know what you wanted to do in terms of your career? Were you very career oriented? Because you 
do have to choose your course ahead of time and you can't really change it in the UK system once you get into university, right? Yes, that's right. So, you know, what I really enjoyed when I was at school, I actually really enjoyed languages. So I had studied French for several years. I did, that was what I took in additional level. AO level was French. So I was almost, I was pretty proficient. I wouldn't say fluent, but good enough to be speaking to anybody in, in French. I had taken Latin for several years. I'd taken German. I had tried to have a few lessons, maybe once a week in Mandarin at the time, but you know, I wouldn't say that my Chinese was, yeah, was of any, any proficiency at all at that stage. But I did enjoy languages. Having said that, the teachers did not consider that to be my strongest subject. They considered economics to be my strongest subject. And so they said, if you want to apply, your best bet is to apply to read economics. Now, I wasn't particularly interested in doing straight up economics. And so actually, my preference would have been to do something to do with business. And so in Oxford, you had economics and management and PPE, which I think was which I thought was also quite interesting. Unfortunately, in my economics class, of whom there were six of us, four others were already applied to Oxford. So they told me, well, you better apply to Cambridge because you need to pay the odds. <laughs> so right. I just what they said and applied for economics at Cambridge. Unfortunately, that class was pure economics. So you know, it really was very narrowly defined, I think, course in economics, which was particularly mathematical. And I think I was okay at maths, but you know, I wasn't exactly a star maths student. But nonetheless, I, you know, I did apply for that. And uh, you know, I did eventually get an offer, again, very thankful for. But uh, it was in any ways then, therefore, my approach was far more practical than, it, than let's say, it was uh, just interest-driven. And so your time at Cambridge, what did you, I mean, I guess during your time at Cambridge, what did you have planned for your career after? Did you really want to get into finance where you ended up or were you more open-ended? This is quite interesting because, so I did take a gap year uh, oh. before going to Cambridge. Uh, so I applied with a deferred entry and they gave an offer with a deferred entry. I managed to convince my father that because I really grown up in near the UK and Hong Kong, Southeast Asia. I really wanted to better understand China and let's say rediscover my early ancestors' roots. And in particular, felt that learning a language in Beijing or learning Mandarin in Beijing would be the right way to do it. He was thrilled with the idea because he is uh, very much a um, a Chinophile. And so he sponsored a year for me to go and study Mandarin. And you could imagine after being in a boarding school for eight years straight and all the rigor and routine that instills in you, when I went on a, you know, on, a, on a year off, let's say, in a country that was still very much developing at the time, I went completely wild. <laughs> China in 1997? <laughs> That's right. China in 1997. Yeah, I think many of the stories... You know, perhaps will save your audience, at least not for complete public disclosure. I might uh, share with you another time in person. But I think what was eye-opening for me was just not just seeing how vast China was. I think you know, I, I kind of appreciate that. I can even almost appreciate that on a map, but just you know, visiting it. And in particular, in the summer after my courses, 
backpacking in the more remote parts of China for eight weeks, everywhere from Kunming, which is the south of China, to Tibet, right, right through to Xinjiang, right, which is kind of the northwestern part of China, and then traveling all the way back through that interior to Beijing. It was a hugely eye-opening experience. And really, probably the first time that I had been exposed so much to, let's say, people who, or who in societies who are growing up in a real poverty, especially when I went backpacking in the very rural parts of Tibet and in uh, Xinjiang as well. And so that was eye-opening. And that, I think, instilled in me an idea in my head in the future that I would want to be working in an emerging market like China in the future on a business that could help alleviate these issues of poverty. In particular, I, there was an experience where we were backpacking in Tibet and we, you know, we had passed through a small town. We had thrown away some of our provisions into a rubbish, into a bin. And there were several kids who rushed to the bin to try and take well, whatever was left in those cans. And one of the kids had cut his finger on the lid of the can because it was canned food that we were eating. And somehow that image really stuck with me. We, we obviously helped the kid and bandaged his finger up. But just to see them be so desperate for food, to be digging around those, that rubbish, you know, the, the waste that we had thrown away for food, kind of was a seed in my mind that if I could contribute in the future back to, a, you know, to an emerging market in some way that could help alleviate poverty, enable younger people to have opportunities to improve their own welfare in some way. I think you know, that was a seed that became a catalyst that motivated me to, me to apply for Stanford and eventually become an entrepreneur. But it was a great decision to, to take a year off. Um, you know, I also had the additional benefit of having learned how to speak Mandarin <laughs> in that nine months there. Did you travel to certain places? Like, how did you plan like where you would travel in China? Did you plan to travel to the more remote places on purpose, or were you avoiding the main cities? We well, I you know I was studying in Beijing, so I didn't want to go stay in Beijing. We had myself and my classmate. We had picked up a Lonely Planet, which was oh you know, the guide, like the book the guide. It was still a book back the book. then. <laughs> the the book, and we decide we planned our route. Using the Lonely Planet, and oh, wow. yeah, we just we just picked areas that we thought would be interesting, and exciting to go to, including there was one route which the Lonely Planet had described as possibly one of the worst journeys on Earth to take. Why? Which <laughs> was a bus ride from Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, down to Agurmu, which is uh, in English is called Golmud, which is a town. I guess uh, I can't remember the province, but it's you know, south of Xinjiang. And you know, because the buses that take this route are obviously very old and not very clean, but on top of that, you are going through mountain passes. People would get sick all the time. And so it was saying it was the worst journey ever because you know, see you're you're in not great conditions. You're in a bus the whole time, which is you know, really <laughs> not the best bus either. And 
many people would often be throwing up and get sick because of the altitude sickness that would occur from going up and down through these mountain passes. We thought it'd be fun to take it. It was absolutely the worst journey I've ever taken because not only were we you know, feeling you know, dizzy with the altitude sickness of going up and down through the mountain passes, on the first day, we stopped at a rest house where I got food poisoning. <laughs> so, Wait, at the rest house? You got, you got food poisoning yeah, so at the, the rest house at, or before? Yeah, at the stop. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Got, I got food poisoning at a stop the bus made where everyone else ate. I was the only <laughs> one that happened to get some really bad diarrhea as a result of the food poisoning. <laughs> Obviously, these buses have no toilets. And yeah, it was quite a terrible experience. <laughs> if you could do it again this year, would you do it again? Take the same path? Or would you have another very, very dangerous path that you'd want to take? <laughs> well, not dangerous, though, another worse path to take. <laughs> I think this was an experience that at the time was really, it was right for the time and the age and the place that I was in. I'm not even sure you can have exactly the same experience, certainly not in China. Everything is so much more developed. When I think of what we did hiking around in China, you know, I, I can't imagine necessarily allowing my son <laughs> to do the same thing. I don't think we actually told my parents. I don't, I don't think I told my parents exactly what, what happened, we, where we were going. <laughs> Maybe high level, but I don't think they, they ever knew all the details of this trip, bearing in mind that you know, we, we didn't always have phones, mobile phones and smartphones yeah. at the time as well, right? So it was fit for the time and place and age that happened i'm not sure i'd go back today and do that again <laughs> <laughs> so i think like those places like tibet Xinjiang, those areas when you see them online there are lots of like beautiful grasslands and all yeah, is it really like that there like in person or is it only like certain areas which people post selectively <laughs> you know again i i don't know what it looks like now i would say that xinjiang or uh, in uh, urumuchi right in yeah in- China. We went to a place called Heavenly Mountains, Tianshi, and we actually stayed with a a tribal person in their yurt. It's like a oh, tent. Yeah. And the I just remember those. It's just so beautiful. They were, they were so untouched. Right. There was you know there was no electricity. There was no <laughs> there was uh, there was not even I mean, there's no water facilities or anything. It really is very very feral in, in nature call it that way and we went hiking over there they taught us how to ride a horse without the mount which was really interesting unfortunately on the second day we went hiking and my classmate who I was with drank some of the river water and unfortunately got dysentery so he had to be emergency kind of uh, not airlifted out but we had to get him get him back to his home country very quickly that but it was a very beautiful place again i can't oh. speak it might be like <laughs> i don't know what it would be like now i would <laughs> want to go i spent like three months in china at some point and i'd always been curious about the more remote places so now maybe i'm gonna put it back Good. onto my bucket uh, you know, list it will, be, <laughs> it will be much easier to travel to now <laughs> and yeah. if i'm in danger at least i have my phone this time <laughs> right <laughs> So I guess you really liked China after after that one year in China, which is why you went back after your MBA. Yeah, so I think from there I was convinced that you know that there would be lots of opportunities in China. 
And I'd say before I launch into kind of going to China through the MBA, I would say that when I got into Cambridge, one of the things that changed for me was that I was able to say exhibit more of my entrepreneurial tendencies you know, versus the academic side of me, which was at boarding school. So on the flip side, when I was at university, I really was not that academic at all. I am ashamed to say that I barely attended you know, all my lectures at Cambridge. The way the system works is that you have to take an annual exam. As long as you pass, right, then yeah, and, and you're good. <laughs> and you wrote your essays with your study groups, then you were good, right? You didn't have to go to all of them. But it did mean for an extremely stressful year end where basically you had to study everything from the year and, and try and do your best in exams. Anyway, where I ended up spending a lot more time was I got involved with a number of societies. And so that's where I found that I really enjoyed organizing groups of people and getting events done, trying to create things as well. I actually created a, a society that ended up raising money every year to donate to a charity, education charity for kids in China. Initially, it was to a charity called Project Hope, and then it moved on to then end up making direct disbursements to students in China. But from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I even tried to start a couple of internet-based companies when we were at school. Unfortunately, oh, at school already? At, at university. So oh. this, is in, this is in around 2000. Myself and a couple of classmates, we tried to create a website where, so I talked about how you had to pass those exams at the end of the year, right? Many students would gather towards the end of the year to exchange essays they'd written because the exams were really just writing essays based on a number of questions, right? And we'd, everyone would do this anyway. They would exchange the essays and so everyone could read each other's essays and basically formulate you know, their ideas of what they could write about should those questions show up. So we created a website that allowed for people to upload their essays and then basically share them, what people were doing anyway in the libraries. Shortly after we, we got this pulled together and you know, we built the website, we even had this idea where companies, recruiters would sponsor the website and we'd make money that way because they would then see the quality of students, right? Yeah. Based on essays. We landed on the front page of the university newspaper for encouraging plagiarism with the website. <laughs> it, was, it was shut down before it even really had a chance to, to prove itself. <laughs> that was a quick end to that entrepreneurial endeavor. But from there, you know, I did continue to have, have interest in in technology and in digital, I, I think even from when I'd st when I'd gone to China, I started using the internet to communicate you know, with these very early messengers and felt that technology and internet in particular was a tool that could really create a lot of value. So I, you know, actually when it came to an internship, I, you know, didn't apply for any internships in the summer, but I did apply for an entrepreneurial competition hosted by JP Morgan. And so I'd written up a business plan you know, of a website, you know, which was called Events. And it's a bit like Eventbrite today, is you could list events and you could ticket. And ended up winning like a second prize for that. I think oh. it was a thousand pounds or something. But on top of that, they gave you an internship for the summer, which oh. you know, I didn't have anything else to do. So I took it. 
Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Right. And I had a great time. At the end of that, they gave me an offer to be investment banker full time, which basically meant I didn't have to interview in my in my last year. So the job lined up as long as I, you know, as long as I got a, a two one, right? A second up. And that's how I got into banking, right? Oh, okay. Wanted to touch on this part because you know, when I got into banking, you know, it was it was I think at the time quite a prestigious job to have. And you know, I think bankers were known at the time and maybe today still to be paid fairly well. But I had not been able to anticipate how hard investment bankers might have to work. And I think that just opened my eyes because we it would be absolutely normal to be working past midnight. And pulling all-nighters were kind of worn as a badge of <laughs> you know, of honor versus you know, being unusual. Weekends, you know, typically you would plan at least one day, if not both, working. And at the was, office or at home? No, at, no, there's no such thing as working oh. at home. <laughs> Everything <laughs> was in the office. It so distorted my idea of what, what, what it meant to work hard. I thought I'd you know, you work fairly hard studying for exams and everything. But when I went into investment banking, it was just a whole nother world. And also because everyone was like that, didn't seem abnormal when you were there, right? Coming into the office, seeing someone who'd slept overnight, you know, in a in a sleeping bag under their desk, you know, you weren't you, you weren't shocked. You're like, well, okay, that's just someone who had to get more work done. And after a couple of years of that, I, I really had started to say to myself, well, if I'm gonna work this hard. Or work for myself, or at least work for a company that I had equity in, work for something that I truly believed in. And that was really the trigger for me to apply to business school. And where did like the concept of having a company that you started or a company that that you had equity in become something you thought about? Like where did you get exposed to that? Because I think most people would think, oh, I'll just start a business, but the concept of working for a company that I at least had equity in. Right. No, that's a good question. So I don't think I'd formalize that concept of owning equity in, but more such that I wanted to create something and I wanted to be an owner in that business of what I create. I didn't even think so far ahead as, you know, what's the upside, you know, how would that monetize, but more that to have the experience of building something that could create value for people and create you know, value for the business as well. And I think that that next very that maybe pivotal part of that journey was, you know, I applied to, I really only applied to two schools. I applied to Harvard and Stanford. And Stanford at the time only had two questions for the application essay, which were, what matters most to you and why? And secondly, why do you want to do an MBA? And what do you want to do with it? And they had no word limits. You could just write as much as you wanted. And they're very deep questions. And I'd, uh, you know, bankers don't typically have all the preparation on how to, or to, to, to do it, to apply for an MBA. So I'd, uh, fortunately had some friends who are consultants and they shared their experience and they said, really, you need to look into your past experiences, try and understand all the different pieces of your experiences and how do they fit together to a coherent story of where you want to go to in the future and being able to articulate that is one of the signals to a business school that you're mature enough now to actually make the best use possible of this opportunity right to take two years out which is high opportunity cost to study 
and take what you've learned and create exponential value into the future. So this was difficult to juggle with the whole business, with the whole uh, investment banking job that I had at the time. But over the course of three months over the summer, where I think uh, activity had come down a little, I basically spent weekends just trying to write anecdotes and stories about my childhood and similar to some of the stories which I shared with you in the past hour and think about what really mattered to me and where I wanted to position myself for in the future and what additional tools I needed to pick up in order to have the best chance of success in that. And it was through that really deeply introspection, that deeply introspective experience process that I found that I really cared about empowerment, right? Being able to create ways in which I could help others be the best that they could be. And I really wanted to have an opportunity to do that in an emerging market country where I felt you could have a much greater impact just simply because you know people, you know, the country's not is not as developed. And you know, some of the even then, the biggest populations, most number of people in the world were in developing countries of China and, you know, and, and elsewhere. So that's where this kind of next decades plan came about. And you know, on that second question, while I had no idea what a VC was, I didn't even know the term. You know, I did write and think that in the future, I wanted to be in a position where I could use you know, technology and capital to empower entrepreneurs to create huge societal and economic impact in the future and to have that in an emerging market. I think in I believed it would be China at the time. But you know, now I think today it, it, it's it's uh, it's been in Indonesia. But I had set my goal on creating what was essentially a venture capital firm, but I did not have the terminology or the financial background to to define it as such. Right. But that's what that's the application. That's the story that I narrative that I used to to apply to business school. And then after you went to business school, how did you end up in China? And then a few years later, end up starting your own venture. Yeah. So in the application process, the stages were supposed to be go to business school, learn about business theory, become a consultant, therefore be able to at least in a practical sense advise and learn more about business, be an entrepreneur, and then you know, this be this venture capitalist, right? What happened was when I was in my first year at business school, I had another very interesting conversation. I had started working on some business ideas. And then it's an interesting conversation with a serial entrepreneur the year above me. And he said, after listening to my idea, he said, well, what have you built? I said, nothing. I've got a business plan or I'm making a business plan. And he said, this is the problem with most of you banker turned, you know, MBA students who want to be entrepreneurs. Like everything is theoretical. You got to go out and build something. If you can't build it, go get someone to build it and sell it. Right. And that worked like a, you know, a light bulb in my head. And that very evening, what I did was I actually, so that, that the idea at the time was to use a web application, a website that could help people learn languages. I felt that helping people learn languages in particular, Mandarin at the time could really help people. And because you're into language learning? Or was and that not as much of a factor? Well. Okay, that is a factor. And so that was the idea. So I went online and I found a couple of 
websites, which are quite light. And I contacted them. And one of the, you know, at the time you have this line at the bottom, contact the webmaster. <laughs> anyway, one, <laughs> of the, one of the people replied and it was an undergrad at oh. Stanford. And so what are the chances? <laughs> what are the chances, right? And so he replied and 10 minutes later he was in my dorm room and we're talking about starting a business together. And that, that was part of, I, to me, that's just part of the magic of Silicon Valley, Stanford. And, you know, that was just towards the end of my first year. I had been applying to be a consultant. I was rejected from the firms that I applied to. I ended up with an internship still working for Pepsi. But as the side project over the summer, we were building prototypes and trying to, to build something that we could sell, right, to use. So long story short, what happened was in the second year, we had an opportunity to do an entrepreneurial course where you actually get classmates to work with you to build an actual business plan. And now to gather some classmates together, we turned the whole business on its head. The opportunity was not to help people learn Mandarin. It was to help students in China learn English uh, because you could see a huge benefit to being able to speak English. And at the same time, while students were studying English, many of them couldn't pass interviews or oral exams because they didn't have the practice. And so we came up with this idea to connect using the internet, work at home people in the U.S., to deliver live and demand English training to students in China. And that's why, and then once we got that idea, we started pitching, you know, we, we managed to raise angel financing in Silicon Valley. And when I graduated, moved to China to go start the business. And uh, oh, that's, wow. that's how the first real business got started. <laughs> and what did the early days look like? Like when you arrived in China and then started doing everything? So this is 2006. So the iPhone, the very first iPhone had just come out, which you, if you, I don't know. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> um, I remember when my wasn't mom a got great, an iPhone. It, it was a, it was an age defining product, but it wasn't a great product. <laughs> <laughs> and of course in China, there was no such thing, you know, as at that point, there wasn't much 3G. I think it was edge, whatever, what, what that meant, 1.5G. So the product really, you had to sit in front of a computer. So in order to get started, so we had a small apartment in the education district, Haidian, of Beijing. And we chose that because that was where we could easily run across the road and grab students and bring them to test the product. And we would literally stand in the university offering free English lessons with native speakers. Get them to find out, bring them to the internet cafe, which we had rented out several seats, you know, hook them up to our US teachers and record the sessions and basically test and test and test. <laughs> it was incredible. And the great thing is the product really worked and people were willing to pay because at the time, students would need to get these high scores in the IELTS test in order to become nurses or to study abroad or to get certain jobs. And because the spoken component of the IELTS test is a real-life in-person interview, many of them failed they couldn't apply the typical rote memory techniques to be able to pass it. And so having that live training really, really helped. However, this was probably a product that was before its time. Education was in high demand. So you had the birth and growth of these huge businesses like New Oriental, just teaching English, but really geared towards helping people ta pass the test preps. We were one of the only ones really focused on helping people speak English better. But 
again, it was early in China for these type for for education. It was early, you know, even for you know for internet based products at that time. And so we really struggled in the conversion. While people who really needed it would pay, it was still hard to convert. You know, based on the number of students who would signal an interest, and yet and then ultimately come to come to pay. But I learned a great deal. It was a fascinating. It was huge, not just fascinating, hugely valuable experience in company building. And while we were able to fortunately sell the business to a private equity backed business eventually after five years, there are countless mistakes that have been learned over that. I mean, five six years of of building, which I think certainly I learned a lot of lessons for, but only made me more hungry to. To get back in and continue to be an entrepreneur. And what was it like to sell the company? How did that feel? Did you feel like it was the right time? Did it take multiple offers for you to want to sell it? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, I, I think so. If we could have, we would have raised more money for the business because we were early to the market, and it took, you know, I think it, it took time for this market to mature. A couple of years after we'd sold the business, or a few years after. Another business called VIP Kid, which is essentially a similar model to ours, would emerge, and that would ultimately become a billion-dollar business until the regulators shut down the whole industry. Lesson being, you can't be too early, you can't be too late <laughs> <laughs> into, into a into a business. But to me, I felt that we had built a fantastic product that was ahead of its time, and we wanted to find a home for the technology. In a business that was more economically sustainable, because we were still losing money as a business, and I think the mixed experience I had there was that I felt some relief that you know this all this technology would hopefully go somewhere. At the same time, I did feel that it was a lost opportunity, and that if we had raised more funding, we'd continued building this business and potentially had a much better outcome as a result through you know being first to market with what. At one point in time, became a hugely valuable business in China. I'm going to gloss over a few things because we're starting to run out of time. I'm enjoying this conversation too much, I guess. But I'm guessing that you ended up in Indonesia because of your time at Rocket Internet. Am I wrong or am I right? You're half right. Okay. So, what is the reason you ended up in Indonesia, coming from China? So, around the time that I had sold. That business, I had met a lady who is now my wife in Beijing, and she's from Indonesia. So how we met was we were both part of this organization, EO Entrepreneurs Organization. I was the chapter head in Beijing, and she was on the board of Indonesia. She just happened to be coming to Beijing to visit her brother, studying at Tsinghua University. And reached out to the chapter, and I'd organized the dinner with the other board members, and you know, that's how we met. We ended up actually going on a trip with some friends a few weeks later, which is where we got together. And so, really, my let's say my personal discovery of Indonesia was initially through love. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we started dating, but of course, it's long distance, so we would meet in different places. And so, I visited. Jakarta, and okay, started coming back to Southeast Asia more. So through that, because I was already you know, coming down here, I started to take part in some of the 
technology events that were happening at the time. I believe it was 2011, Tech in Asia had hosted their very first Jakarta meetup, probably like 50 people there. And as I learned more about Indonesia, it dawned on me that here we had fourth largest country in the world by population. And yet many of the companies that I had seen in the past five, six years in China had barely been built yet. And I felt that this could be a remarkable place to take the lessons and learnings that I had had as an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur in China and bring them to help other entrepreneurs or to indeed start a business, another business of my own, as well as bring hopefully some network and investors to this market. So that's, that's how that discovery of Indonesia happened. And then, you know, as uh, you mentioned, after I saw that first company, I was recruited by Rocket Internet. So I started working for Oliver Samwer, first to build a accommodations marketplace in China, and then later move a Rocket Internet to Indonesia to build a separate business called OfficePad. But that intention was always to be able to hit the ground running with a, you know, with something that's in the, you know, with a, with a job that was squarely in the area I wanted to, to build in. And more importantly, you know, I think it was you know, to make sure that I had a way to very quickly immerse myself in the entire ecosystem. Right. So well, I wasn't planning to stay there long. I co-founded a business. And then started working on the venture fund in 2014. And what was your first investment, even outside of the fund? I'm not sure if you made any angel investments before that. I wish I had. You know, I I met uh, <laughs> Avaloka back when they were still a meta search platform. Very also met with uh, William at a very early stage. You know, I uh, had not seen myself as an investor yet at that stage. I was still very much thinking of still starting. A business. I'd uh, done some minor in investments in an outsourcing company, which I've since exited, but I had not, you know, really built a portfolio uh, back back then. So, what made you start a VC fund and start thinking that I can start investing now? What was the shift? So, I think first was the recognition that there were so many companies getting started in Indonesia. And Southeast Asia indeed at that time. And the belief that I could build a business, a platform, and a fund, which could really, what I hope to do was offer something different to just being a pure source of, of funding. So there was a gap in the market for funding. But having been an entrepreneur, I recognized that funding wasn't the only thing that founders could benefit from. And so I felt that strongly that I could build something with a differentiated value proposition to the founders. And from there, I was connected through a classmate at Stanford to another alumni who was also interested to invest in technology-enabled startups in Indonesia. And he had offered then, after a series of discussions, to anchor half the fund. So after half the fund was anchored, I went back to go raise the other half of the fund. And that led to us getting into business as Convergence Ventures, which is the first fund of a 2016 vintage. And I think this is stepping a little bit outside of your current job, but in your career, especially in the last few years, what do you think has been the biggest personal sacrifice you've made? Personal sacrifice? You know, I, I don't think I would ever see it as a personal 
sacrifice. In terms of being an entrepreneur, it's hard to talk about balance per se, because what is balance, right? The work or the career or the profession enters so many parts of your life. And because it's your business, is it's naturally hard to just detach oneself from it, right? And because it coincides with passion that you would have with it, then there's no, no, not there's sometimes not even the desire to go and detach from the business. So I think it's been more about trying to integrate what works. And I feel over the senior since being an entrepreneur, rarely have I had to make a trade-off or sacrifice one thing for another, but rather choose carefully and prioritize what is important to me and important here for, for the business. So case in point, and in 2013, I hadn't started the venture firm yet, but somehow I had convinced myself that it was the right time to start and co-found a new company and also train to do a full Ironman while we were having our first child. That's like three things, four things, four major things. <laughs> In one year. And there wasn't a deep amount of thought as to you know, how to sequence these things. Or, But I'm, I'm very grateful that I have a highly understanding wife and partner who's very entrepreneurial in nature as well. And that I was able to you know, ultimately be able to do all, all of those things. And I think without any sacrifice to any aspect of it. and so. A proponent of identifying things that you truly want to do. And more often than not, there's no better time than now. And if it's important enough and you want to do it enough, you make time for it as well. I think earlier I shared with you that we have this new segment where, you know, readers can submit something they're going through. And I when I shared with you earlier, I think you said some really interesting things about it in terms of like how entrepreneurs shouldn't necessarily take advice or how you're trained not to give advice. I actually liked hearing that, so I hope that you could share it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So one of the tenets of both EO Entrepreneurs Organization and YPO, Young Presidents Organization, which I'm a member of now, is that because each of us are business owners and run businesses within that forum, you can find more value in that forum where you present it's a working forum, right? it's a professional forum. So you're there to help support one another. But one of the ways to support one another is the way to support one another when, if you present a, an issue or challenge or an opportunity that you're faced with is not necessary to advise someone do this or do that. And that's because whenever anyone were to present something, even if you've done a preparation, the listener probably only has a sliver of what's actually going on or whatever you can fit in in a 15-minute presentation. And there are probably a myriad of other issues that are intertwined and other stakeholders that are involved as well. So to be able to give advice to that person at that time you know, to solve their challenge is going to be challenging, you know, very challenging. But instead, because we've all, we all you know, everyone in the forum is running businesses or are business owners, you've probably come across a similar issue yourself in your own experience. And so if you're sitting in a forum of eight people and you have one protagonist, seven people sharing similar issues, what they've done, what the issue was, how they faced it, what was the result, and what have they learned from it? 
can be far more beneficial than seven people sitting there saying, well, I think you should do this or you should do that. There's also a lot less liability because in the end of the day, <laughs> if, if, if it doesn't go well, you're not going back and saying, well, you told me to go do this. <laughs> That's not to say there isn't a place for advice, but I think there is a place for understanding what is the best way to offer advice, right? And I think that plays into the boardroom as well, right? Because again, in the boardroom, when you're working with entrepreneurs, even if you've been an investor in that company for a long time, the chances that you know a quarterly or even a monthly board meeting, you can understand all the intricacies of what the founder is going through day in, day out, 24 hours a day, right? Are very low, right? You're not in their shoes. You're not facing the same pressures. So I found that some of the best ways you can you know, so-called advise entrepreneurs is to play from your experience and say, look, I've seen this, I've seen that, this is what's happened, these are things to consider. And be a supporting listener and a challenger to questions and ideas that the founder has. Help them see around the wall, help them see different perspectives. But ultimately, the decision should land with the founders and entrepreneurs themselves. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to close this podcast with one last question that we ask everyone in the podcast. And that is outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life at any point in your life, even, I don't know, 50 years from now? Well, something that I have spent a fair amount with, of course, let me put family aside. I, you know, I, I put a lot of value in my family and spending time, I believe, making time, quality time for one's spouse is also a key to helping, you know, having great upbringing for the kids and you know guiding them in the right way but putting you know that aside one area that has fascinated me um in, in the past few years has been the subject of longevity i am deeply into the belief that being fit in body contributes to being fit in mind you know, people i believe perform best when they're fit and healthy and i think there is increasing evidence to show that there are interventions that we can be doing in nutrition, in exercise, in sleep, and others, supplements as well, and other things that can be really beneficial to extending lifespan, health span, so that uh, you can live a long, healthy life. And why is that important? I think that's important because if you think about your human, one of the things that they accumulate most over time is experience. Right. And you want to be functional such that as you accumulate that experience, you can contribute more to society because you're just getting more and more efficient with that. Right. And in an ideal scenario, you're able to be healthy and functional and contributing right to the point you know, where your body gives way and you die. Right. You don't want to be in a, you know, ideally, you're not in a position where your health is deteriorated and you're still alive, but you're unable to contribute, whether it's, you know, physically or mentally. And so I think this is a very interesting and fascinating area where I think uh, more and more people are looking into it. And I think you know, this is one of the ways that as a society, we can have increasing, you know, of course, there's <laughs> technology like AI now, but you can have increasing ROI on a, in um, creating value because the people who are getting older with all that experience can continue to have longer, healthier lifespans where they can contribute uh, back to society. Well, thank you for sharing that, Adrian. Thanks for having the chat with me today. I feel like this was too fun. 
And I wish it has a bit longer, but I guess we just have to talk again after, I don't know, two more years. <laughs> Do you have more stories to share? <laughs> Thanks, Amanda.